This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, Poetry Editor of the New Yorker magazine. On this program, we invite poets to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and chat about. Then, we ask them to read one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is David Lehman, the author of over a dozen books of poetry and prose, who's received awards and fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Ingram Merrill Foundation, and the Lila Wallace Reader Digest Fund. The founder and series editor of The Best American Poetry, he teaches in the Graduate Creative Writing Program at the New School. Welcome, David. Nice to be here with you, Kevin. The poem you've chosen to read is Worsening Situation by John Ashbery. Tell us what in particular about this poem caught your eye as you're sifting through the archives. Well, I remember it from the time it appeared in print, and it was also a poem that Ashbery particularly liked, as one could tell, because when he gave a poetry reading, he seldom read poems from the, his last volume. He preferred to read poems from his next volume or his work in progress. But the one poem that he would read from Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror was Worsening Situation. I came to like the poem so much, I even wrote a poem of my own in the manner of this poem to try to convey why I liked it, because it's easier to do that in a way by paraphrase than by rational explanation, which I suppose is true for a, a lot of Ashbery's poems. One doesn't comprehend them in the ordinary sense since they jump all over the place and uh, they move from one pronoun to another. They shift tenses. They change tone and subject matter. And this poem begins with two similes, but it is never indicated what the thing is likened to. So you as the reader may infer that the subject of the poem never stated is either the poet or poetry. Well, let's give it a listen. Here's David Lehman reading Worsening Situation by John Ashbery. Worsening Situation. Like a rainstorm, he said, the braided colors wash over me and are no help. Or like one at a feast who eats not, for he cannot choose, from among the smoking dishes. This severed hand stands for life, and wander as it will, east or west, north or south. It is ever a stranger who walks beside me. Oh, seasons, booths, chaleur, dark-hatted charlatans, 
on the outskirts of some rural fete, the name you drop and never say is mine, mine. Someday I'll claim to you how all used up I am because of you, but in the meantime, the ride continues. Everyone is along for the ride, it seems. Besides, what else is there? The annual games? True, there are occasions for white uniforms and a special language kept secret from the others. The limes are duly sliced. I know all this, but can't seem to keep it from affecting me every day, all day. I've tried recreation, reading until late at night, train rides, and romance. One day a man called while I was out and left this message. You got the whole thing wrong from start to finish. Luckily, there's still time to correct the situation, but you must act fast. See me at your earliest convenience, and please tell no one of this. Much besides your life depends on it. I thought nothing of it at the time. Lately, I've been looking at old-fashioned plaids, fingering starched white collars, wondering whether there's a way to get them really white again. My wife thinks I'm in Oslo. Oslo, France, that is. That was Worsening Situation by John Ashbury, which was published in the January 20th, 1975 issue of the magazine. So I loved hearing you read that. Um, I think you read it well and with this great emphasis. And I think also, is it me or does the humor shine through when you hear it aloud? Uh, what do you think of that humor in this poem? And I guess I suppose Ashbury's use of humor. I believe Ashbury is a very funny poet. And though when he reads his poems, when he used to read his poems, it was with a very flat, uh, non-affect, still the audience got the humor. For example, right. the last line, I'm in Oslo, Oslo, France, that is. That's very funny. I, it's hard to say <laughs> what makes it so funny, but or, or the use of the uh, commercial, uh, the idea of starched white collars, wondering whether there's, there's a way to get them really white again. Uh, his mind can move from uh, Rambeau, who's alluded to in this poem, and uh, Keats. There's a, a phrase here, this severed hand at the end of line four, I think is a deliberate echo of Keats's last poem, this living hand. And as such, that would s seem to be uh, standing for poetry itself. But that in the same poem that you have Keats and Rambeau, and I, I think there's also an, an allusion subtle to um, the, the Wasteland, you would also have a television commercial or a, a kind of plot device of a crank call uh, warning you of something unnamed that will worsen your situation. Or, or the annual games, or everyone is along for the ride, it seems. You know, I, I think that you're exactly right. I also think the poem has these interesting two parts on the page, the first part ending with reading late at night, train rides, and romance. And I think the poem is, in a way, that first part, which is illusion-heavy, has this kind of end-of-romance quality uh, to it. And that crank call, as you put it, kind of intrudes on that, but also, I think, shows 
some kind of weird connection to that. The doom and gloom of this crank collar seems somehow kind of part of this romantic severed hand that is life. I wonder about that and, and how you take it, these two parts of the poem. Well, now that you mention it, I, I can see uh, your point also because the end of the first stanza seems to me to recall the very end of the first stanza of part one of the of the wasteland where he says, I, I read late in, in the night and go to mountains. I, I can't quote it exactly, but I've tried recreation, reading until late at night, train rides and romance seems to bring back that voice. That is a despairing voice, although the things named recreation, reading, rides and romance uh, are as um, amusing as they are alliterative. It's interesting that the uh, stanza break is only sort of half a break because right. the second stanza begins indented after the end of the first stanza. And it starts, one day a man called while I was out. Yes. Well, and it shifts us sort of into a modern world, which we might have been in the whole time, but there's a way in which the first part of the poem has this uh, old-fashioned quality, and then is the situation getting worse <laughs> as the poem goes on, or is is there a kind of redemption uh, there, at least a rejection of this crank call or this bad news which somewhat awaits us all? Tell no one of this. Much beside your life depends on it, ends the call. I thought nothing of it at the time. There, there's something wonderful about that turn there. He could say anything, of course. He's, he's gotten away with so much um, and brought us so far. Um, but what do you make of that uh, turn there? I find it interesting that the word life, your life, and much besides your life depends on it, is the second time in the poem that that, that very large noun is mentioned the first time is this severed hand stands for life. Right, right. I suppose that the uh, worsening situation may be the writer's life itself. Or the reader's life. That's right. It could be anyone's. Everyone is along for the ride, which is the kind of cliche that he loves. <laughs> right, right. Well, tell me a little bit, too, about you clearly had a long uh, relationship and knowing him as a poet. Um, would you tell us just a little bit about uh, your impressions of that, whether it's about the changes his work made or didn't make? How do, how do you think back on this important American and world poet? Well, he was my favorite poet. He still is my favorite poet. I felt that he was a, a genius from the time I met him. He had an extremely dry wit. He was a very funny man. He knew more about more things than anyone I think I've ever met. And his style was, in a way, inimitable, and yet at the same time, everyone was imitating it or aspects of it. For example, his use of pronouns. You never knew whether the I you, he, or she were all aspects of the same personality, which I, th I think they, they are. I think he prized something he once called polyvocality, that is having <laughs> a lot of different voices in your head and, and right. letting them all speak as if life were a drama and as if poetry were something that were, was going on in his mind at all times, and he could just sit down and 
cut off a uh, a bolt of this cloth. Yeah, that's well said. And I think that the high and low, as it were, of his mix, I think, is both influential and also shared, as I know you've written, with the New York School poets, of which Ashbery has um, long been considered one uh, and one of the key ones. Would you tell us just a little bit about how you see him fitting into the New York School and maybe sort of the extensions of that for our own time? Yes. Uh, at Harvard in the late 1940s, Ashbery, Kenneth Koch, and Frank O'Hara were all students. Kenneth helped John get into the Harvard Advocate Literary Magazine, and there began a close friendship and competition between these two fellows. They were very loyal friends for the rest of their days, and uh, in his last weeks uh, at Harvard, John met Frank O'Hara at, I think, a record store. Uh, He overheard Frank make some outlandish remark uh, to the effect that uh, uh, Poulenc was greater than Wagner, and they were instant friends. These three formed a core, and then James Schuyler became a fourth, when they all were living in New York City in the early 1950s, and they got along very well with painters. The painters were known as the New York School, like Jackson Pollock and uh, Willem de Kooning, Franz Klein, Hans Hoffmann, and and so on. And uh, a gallery dealer thought that he would appropriate that term for the for the poets uh, as if this were Is a this branch. Timur Dinage? Yes. There was a, a man of great showmanship who was running the gallery then called John Bernard Myers and he, he coined the phrase. Ashbery never liked it because he thought that he was more of an individual than part of a movement. They, right. they prized humor. They prized the spirit of parody. They also turned to other forms of art rather than just poetry. They, they looked for inspiration to music or painting. Jazz, I think, is... Jazz, too. For us jazz heads, um, is very much a, a music that plays with high and low and with illusion and quickness and, and the kind of slipperiness of language. So even if it's not in reference, I feel like there's a kinship there. I think that plays itself out also in your poem that we're about to talk about. In the September 23rd, 1991 issue, The New Yorker published your poem, Stages on Life's Way, which you're going to read for us now. And I wonder if you can mention just a little bit about what the structure is. We can talk after about how you came to it. Sure. I have the feeling, reading John's uh, worsening situation, that he may have written it in one sitting and not revise it, although he may have and yet uh, still accomplished that feeling that it all came out at once. Often that's true of my poems, but that's not the case with Stages on Life's Way. I had been working for a year on this poem and related poems that were uh, composed of sonnets. This poem has three sonnets, and each has a part title. I was trying to write about romance, and at the same time about something larger, like one's entire career. So I called the poem Stages on Life's Way because that's the title of a book by Kierkegaard, and I thought it would be somewhat ironic 
but at the same time, I like the idea of implying that th there were questions of uh, faith as well as fate in, in my poem about romance. Here's David Lieben reading his poem, Stages on Life's Way. Stages on Life's Way. One, the night before. He liked waiting. Waiting gave him a purpose to live. Waiting outside the marriage counselor's office, he read that the unconscious is structured like a language. The verbs in the dream he had the night before were copulating on flying carpets or chasing taxis in Tokyo, always doing something, taking action, not just waiting as he was doing now, waiting quietly in an armchair holding a book or pacing back and forth like an expectant husband, waiting for the appointment with the insignificant clerk without whose signature the elopement would be canceled, waiting without anxiety, knowing that the time of the wait would be infinite and how much clear thinking could be done, waiting for the dinner bell for the music to begin, waiting for the fog to lift so the darkness could be seen. Two, the morning after. You're a bastard, she said, admiringly. He was. He admitted it. He saved his own book from the flames, letting hers burn. How young he looked. She spat. I'd rather be dead. The ritual began with a kiss, as it always did. The one-armed man identified himself. My name, he flashed his teeth, is death. And the fruit in her mouth turned to ash in the darkened hotel room under the coverlet. A ringing phone interrupted their embrace. She put a hand to her face. Where had he seen her before? In somebody else's window. The woman in the painting was somebody else's widow, somebody else's wife. But that was art, and this was life. Three, the next day. He was impulsive. One day he decided to read Conrad and bought The Secret Agent, Victory, and Under Western Eyes. The next day he had a craving for canned fruits and came home with purple plums and heavy syrup, Queen Anne cherries in light syrup, and pineapple chunks in juice, no sugar added. Also, he wasn't going to the theater enough, so he lined up seats for Gypsy and City of Angels. Then he forgot to go and left the cans of fruit in the icebox and put Conrad on the shelf. The next disaster hadn't yet begun, so there was time to find out what she was like as a child, and they could be children together in her parents' hotel room, opening the drawers, hiding in the closet, and she put on her mother's pearl necklace, and later they looked for snakes behind bushes, and she fell down. It was summer, a bowl of ripe apricots, the mud on their knees. That was Stages on Life's Way by David Lehman. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? 
there's a new translation of the Iliad that's coming out. Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> I loved hearing you read that. That was so great. I feel like in the poem, we progress through this end of a romance in a way. I, I think the idea of writing the next disaster after uh, to open a line, uh, just a few lines after writing the next day, uh, implies that uh, the, you're, you're going from one crisis to, to another, either in the marriage or in one's life. I did like the idea of ending with a certain kind of hope concealed in uh, memory. Uh, there was time. Uh, ending the line there, there is still time to do a lot of things, of which one would be uh, to go back to being as innocent a as a child and remembering the, the days prior to puberty when one played with uh, when a, a boy might play with a, a girl and uh, and she put on her mother's pearl necklace wanting to be an adult so that the, these kids are acting out their adult fantasies. That, that, that seemed like a hopeful way of concluding. I love that line too, uh, the end stanza I should say, the woman in the painting was somebody else's widow, which is also playing with window from the previous line somebody else's wife, but that was art, and this was life. And that distinction or that dismissal of the kind of fantasy that the speaker, but also I think implied we all engage in, uh, is interesting. How's that work for you now, or, or how do you think it, you pictured it working then? I, I, I was very happy when I got to that stanza and could allow window to shade into widow, and then wife, implying adultery, but also a fresh romance, but then leaving it unclear whether we were talking about something like a novel or life itself, which is left out. Uh, but that was art, and this was life. What What does that refer to? What is this refer to, uh, I think in a way that's something that I derived from Ashbery, the idea that a, a pronoun could make perfect sense in context and yet leave it wide open as to what it specifically represents. We've been talking in a way about romance, um, big R and little r romance, and I wonder how much of the romantics you think uh, play into your work, but also in this continuum you're, you're talking about with Ashbury. Well, uh, my favorite group of poets in the history of uh, English poetry are, are the Romantic poets, uh, particularly Coleridge, Keats, Byron, Wordsworth, Shelley. I do think Ashbury is a Romantic poet in, in that tradition, a late Romantic, 
a tradition that also includes Emerson and Whitman and I guess Wallace Stevens. I feel that uh, the, the Romantics exalted imagination over all else. And I believe that that's something true of the New York School and something true of a lot of us who find reality unsatisfactory in many ways and therefore resort to art as a way of escaping from actuality by creating something uh, worthy of our respect, if not adoration. I wonder, I, I'm aware that the romantic lineage we're talking about, it sounds a little like a boys club. Do you feel like that's true? Is this idea of imagination gendered in any way? Or um, how does Emily Dickinson, for instance, what does she tell us being, to me, the great poet, uh, one of our great poets of all time, but also certainly of the 19th century? Is she romantic? Is she anti-romantic? How does she tell us about ourselves? Oh, I think she's a key figure. Uh, she's also one of my favorite all-time poets, and along with Whitman, I think the, the grandmother of uh, American poetry, if he's the grandfather, they're an odd couple, for sure. Uh, but she, she's, uh, you know, she writes about how there's no uh, frigate like a book for escape. Uh, she writes about death as if she's already had the experience of it, which yes. is a great claim for the imagination to make. I find her a central figure and someone I turn to more and more uh, and I love teaching her because, uh, you know, if you recite a first line of one of her poems and dare the, uh, not dare, but challenge the group to come up with a, a good second line that would follow, they will never be able to match the surprise that she has in store for us with line two. Right. Well, I think surprise is key. I think it's definitely part of a romantic wish for a poem to be inspired, to be an example of genius and of saying something new. Um, all ideas I think we carry with us when we read a poem. I think romantic ideals are very much ones we have, um, but also of the sort of soul genius receiving this message, often not from within but from without, that is about... Uh, nature or the world or transcendence in some way. I wonder how that, thinking again of your poem, which thinks about romance in a particular way, uh, I wonder how we handle it, because I, I love how you bring us right into the marriage counselor office, or you bring us into this argument in the second part of the poem. But then also this kind of, is it lazy? Is it uh, a kind of a self that isn't so geniusy, maybe that is buying these canned goods and uh, can't really crack Conrad. Is that a lessening? Is that just a fact-based version of modern life or a fiction-based version of modern life, if you will? Um, how do we uh, square these these moments in time? Well, um, I, I agree with you about surprise. Uh, wasn't at Emerson, who said, "What we mount to uh, paradise on the stairway of surprise. And the wish to surprise the reader is certainly something central in poets like Ashbery and O'Hara. And it's something I 
value a great deal. I, I think that as a poet, you have very little opportunity to uh, catch the reader's attention, especially in a day of uh, shrinking attention spans. You've got to grab the reader in the first line and keep surprising that reader. And in the case of this poem, once I got to the line, but that was art and this was life, I felt that I had to move f from the world of art to a much more quotidian actuality of, you know, well, this is, okay, this is life. Life is, uh, you know, buying these books and buying these uh, cans of fruit, which I, I think it's somewhat humorous to, to describe with, uh, you know, the cans of purple plums with heavy syrup and Queen Anne cherries and light syrup and, and, and so on. Uh, that all seems sort of like deliberately anticlimactic. Uh, but it seemed to me like, in a way, part of life itself, that one does these things and then forgets about it. Right, right. And, you know, there's almost a kind of triumph when you make it home with those cans or when you buy that Conrad um, or he wasn't going to the theater enough, so he lined up seats, you know, then he forgot to go. And that, too, is, I think, um, part of modern life. And I think you capture it so beautifully here. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you very much, David. It's really a pleasure talking with you. Stages on Life's Way by David Lehman, as well as John Ashbery's poem, Worsening Situation, can be found on newyorker.com. John Ashbery's latest book is his collected poems, 1991 to 2000. David Lehman's most recent collection is Poems in the Manner of. Thanks again, David. Thank you, Kevin. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Pentagree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alastair Fraser and Natalie Haas from Colburny Records. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com with help from Hannah Eisenman. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. From PRX.